This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, we're back. It's Thursday afternoon, and as we're recording, we're keeping our fingers crossed that uh, no more college football cancellations are happening. Uh, Matt Green is here, as he always is, on the full ride on the Chase Thomas podcast. Matt, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good afternoon, sir. Just uh, glad to be back at it. You know, last week felt it didn't feel right, us not uh, giving our weekly picks for the college football weekend. So we're back at it. Feels good. I'm a little concerned that we have Army and Georgia Southern in our picks this week. I'm I'm mad that you made me research Army Georgia Southern this week. And Tennessee Auburn somehow did not make the cut. How does that happen? That's a good question. I think I'll have to uh bring that up to the uh to the to the pick of Maestro. Uh because mm-hmm. that's that's not even that big of a spread. That that would have liked to have picked that one. That's a difficult one to pick too, right. but Honestly, I feel like that uh, that Georgia Southern Army game is kind of a sneaky good game, though. I think so, too. But also, I think Army might just be bad. Um, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, I heard someone say the other day that, like, Army is CUSA good, but, like, Sunbelt bad was <laughs> something, like, just in comparison. Uh, they're good for their conference. But anyway, we'll we'll get to those games. Um Matt, what have uh, what have you been reading in preparation for this week? Man, I feel like I try not to read too much because I feel like every head every other headline is. I was going to say I did go to college with you, so I, I know that <laughs> I, I remember that part of it. Burn, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, every every other thing you read is that so and so is opting out, so and so's game is canceled or postponed. So I I feel like I'm trying to avoid the news and and maybe it won't come i'm gonna try to hide from it but i don't mm. think it works that way yeah I mean, no i don't think that's how it works the um, world still moves if i uh even if i read about it or not i think that's the sam Pittman strategy right now in fayetteville <laughs> where more right? cases are popping up and he's like it's fine we're playing we'll play with 32 people we'll play who cares um yeah i uh i don't know it's just it's concerning um we're just at that point where we're just like, we got to get this thing through. But also, I'm just kind of frustrated because I don't think we'd be in this position if they all just had started when they did. Like, we should have, like, who didn't expect it to be worse around this time? Like, we had been told the second wave around this time of year was going to be worse than August. So, these other conferences not getting those games in early like everyone else was, it's just, I, I just, it was a huge huge mess up on the Pac-12, the Big Ten, and other conferences that waited way too long. And now they're in the thick of things. And like you see shutdowns around the country. Like you can't even get into Pennsylvania without quarantining for two weeks now. So we're in that predicament. And I'm just like, I don't even really feel bad for these schools that are going through it because I'm like, 
you could have avoided all this by just playing when it was going to it wasn't going to be the best situation but it was going to be a lot better than what it is right now yeah without a doubt and that's one of the things i wondered was why why are we even moving it back like why yeah. why don't we just try to try to just do the thing but obviously i'm not i'm not a doctor i don't i don't know what's going on i'm just i'm selfishly just hoping for as many weeks of college football as we can get yeah same 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 um well you can follow us at chase double underscore thomas matt underscore w underscore green uh go check out chase thomas podcast.com uh go be a patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash chase thomas writer it helps uh like me on facebook facebook.com slash chase thomas writer um matt where are we at picks wise going into this weekend all right picks wise uh so far i am you are leading against the spread 46 46 and one to my 44 48 and one but overall, I still have the lead, uh, 58-35, and you are 52-41. and 41. And we also got to give some love uh, to Zeus, who's 1-0 and 0 on his home dog. <laughs> Does he have his home so dog of the week this week? Is, is oh, he he's prepared, prepared sir. Okay. You know it. And full disclosure, I actually went 5-6 and six against the spread last week. And eight no, and three no, and we're not it's doing not that. It's not on the record. It's we're off not the doing record. that. But I did still pick the games on We're the sheet. We're not doing that. I'm not adding it to the overall okay. score. I just want the audience to know that it's basically par for the course. Mm. Uh, slightly under 500 against the spread and then a solid performance uh, overall. Okay. As long as it's not going in the record books, I'm no. I would it. never. I would never count that. It wasn't on the on the air. It wasn't on the record. But uh, my 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 weekly pick'em group can can confirm that I did make those picks because it was not a good performance for me mm. against the spread. <laughs> well, not a lot of SEC games for you this week, so uh, looks like it might be another dubious week for Max that's Green. True. That's that's my kryptonite. Yeah. I, uh, we'll see. I um. I, with with all those early weeks, I, we became a lot more familiar with the with the Sun Belt mm-hmm. and the Fun Belt, as we like to call it. Mm-hmm. And not not any uh, no AAC games. That's that's been our uh, one of our favorites this year. But yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, did you see that Kent State like score in yards this week? No, hit me with it. Hold on, I gotta pull this up. The yardage was crazy. Like the no context college football Twitter account is great. Um, I don't know if you followed that one, but they had this like graphic up. Let me pull this up. Kent State football. Cause I want to see the total. Uh, yeah. 69, 35 against Akron. All right. Kent State, Akron and <laughs> 69, 35. And, uh, what was the total yards? What was it? It was something bonkers. Like their total yards was something bonkers. And I can't, this is great radio as I'm great searching for this. Radio. Um, five forty nine and three forty five. Good God! Oh, still pulling this up. I should probably have this up before, but it is what it is. Um. Oh, here it is. No. So Kent State had this was what was bonkers. Kent State had seven hundred and fifty total yards in this game. Three hundred and sixty through the air. Three hundred and ninety on the ground. That's just a balanced attack right there. Gotta respect that. 750 yards of offense from the Golden Flashes, who are now 3-0. and The Golden Flashes. You love to see Wait. it, folks. You love to see it. <clears throat> um, 
Chubba Purdy, uh, Brock Purdy's younger brother, is out for the season. Getting some quick news and nuts, uh, nuts and bolts about this uh, this weekend. Um, Chubba Purdy is out. Jordan Travis has been really good. He was compared to Lamar Jackson by some ACC coach recently, and I was like, ah, that might be a little bit of a stretch. Um, Billy Napier, favorite, betting odds favorite to be the next South Carolina coach at number two. Freeze is plus 400. Napier is plus 300. Would you like to guess who number three is? Who I think it, I would put the most money on. Well, I've seen uh, some Shane Beamer yes, talk. Yes, he is number three. That is that's, who I would put my money on. Think? Yeah, I mean, and I wonder if that's the best uh, route for South Carolina to go is some guy who just, like, giving him his first head coaching job, like, maybe that's someone who could stick around a little bit longer. Right. He's from the area. uh, Yeah, maybe uh, the coach, you know, that's just taking South Carolina as the next stepping stone on where they're going. Unfortunately, the reality for South Carolina is even if that is the guy you get, that might be good enough. You know, maybe he does well enough for four or five years at your school to move on. It's like you look at some of these programs like like a Cincinnati or something or a Memphis. I mean, they're replacing their coaches every four or five years because they're all going – power five jobs so it's it's difficult for south carolina because they're competing against a bunch of other schools that are destination jobs but maybe they kind of need to take a step back and be like look we just need to try to get anybody that can just come in for a couple years and help us out and it'll be a mutual relationship we'll help you get to where you need to go you want to go and you help us where we want to go yeah and i think shane beamer i just think a lot more schools need to think about a where they're at in their program what they want to be like a lot more schools just need to be like hey let's just go get this guy who we think is going to be here potentially for five ten years if you're so many teams are just like oh this is the hot name but it's like is he going to be a stepping stone guy like is he looking how does he view your program i think that matters a lot more um than some administrations uh factor in there is that like shane beamer from the area Assistant coach at Oklahoma, for people who did not know this, son of Frank Beamer, longtime Virginia Tech coaching legend. Um, Frank Beamer, guess what? He was at one place forever. Shane Beamer might want to follow in his dad's footsteps and just be there forever. And if he's really solid, we talked about the South Carolina job on Sunday, is that like it's not a great job. They're never winning a national title. You, you, It was the same thing really at Virginia Tech for most of the years. Is like they weren't – they were close but never – Never quite the the premier program in the Big East and stuff well, like Virg- that. Virginia Tech was a legitimate title contender, though. I, don't I mean, think they, so. I mean, back in in Frank Beamer's days, I mean, for they one, they had the, they were they had the big team. Oh, they had the big team that went to the national championship. So yeah. they were obviously a contender. But I feel like they were that was back when the Big East was respectable, and even yeah. the first years of the ACC, they probably well, they probably won like. Four of the first five or six ACC championships. Mm. I feel like they were like when the actual title games. Like I feel like the Virginia Tech was a respectable, at least top ten program. And the, the years that everything goes right, you can get into that top five uh, kind of conversation. It's like now, like South Carolina, like they're nowhere close to where Virginia Tech. Even South Carolina's best years, you could argue, weren't even close to Virginia Tech. And they've never best. even been where Virginia Tech was in the early two thousands. Like they've never been there as a program. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, put them as close to Virginia Tech. I well, I guess like- I'm just saying that like when I'm comparing like Beamer just being there forever, like he didn't have he wasn't going into every year where the Virginia Tech fan base was like national title or get the hell out. Like South Carolina fans have to 
adjust what they want and i just see them on twitter and just like oh we want hugh freeze and like they're because i think when they see hugh freeze or billy napier they see we can win the sec and it's like no 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 no. okay those guys are being set up to fail because you are not going to outgun georgia you're not going to outgun florida um right now like the right guy could outgun tennessee in all honesty but like but that's where your that's where your sights have to be as a yes. who can get us to the, win the SEC. I feel like I don't think that should Freeze. be the case. I think you should look at who can maintain this program where we don't go two and five and we don't go who can keep us at like seven and five, eight and four, and then one great ten and two year every five years. And I think Shane Beamer is someone who could do that and build out the right staff. He's worked for a lot of great coaches already. Um just but let him you, build out a staff and let him just be average. Like see, I, I would say, sad, I but, would say the Beamer yeah. argument is the opposite of what you're saying. I feel mm. like the Beamer seems like the high risk, high reward. Like because we have no idea how good of a head coaching job this guy could, or how good of a head coach this guy could be. Whereas if you take a guy who's been proven at a lower level, like mm. um, I'm blanking on the Coastal Carolina head oh, coach. Oh, he's like name. the fourth guy favorite. Yeah, um, I know he's up there too. Campbell, what is his name? Something uh, coast of Carolina. I'm gonna look it up. Keep going as I'm looking it up. But but yeah, and so I feel like I'd be terrified of hiring someone, that guy. Someone like that at least Jamie could provide Chadwell. some Chadwell. There you go. So could at least provide some consistency and just like a, a a higher floor than South Carolina's had the last few years. You know, so I I don't know. It's an interesting. They're in such a strange uh, just position as a program in general. I feel like Hugh Freeze would be the perfect hire personally because South Carolina seems like desperate for like, you know, they always say like the, the, the Jets and Mets always like want to like, like leave that back page, you know, something sexy, like that gets the headlines. Like I feel like South Carolina desperately, like even if they're not good, they want to be talked about, you know, they want to be like just not irrelevant. And like someone like Lane Kiffin has kind of done to Ole Miss, you know, like, they're not necessarily that good yet, but they're creating such a buzz nationally. Like, I think that's that's what South Carolina wants to do. I'm not sure they're able to do that, but I feel like Hugh Freeze, I would still say, seems like the perfect hire unless he just thinks he's above the South Carolina job, which he very well might. I think he is. Um, if I'm Hugh Freeze, I'm waiting for a better job. No, and I and I and I definitely get that. Auburn Auburn definitely seems like a candidate for for Hugh. You know what Freeze. I would do if I was Hugh Freeze? Justin Fuente, like speaking of Virginia Tech, this is now the Virginia Tech podcast, I guess. But like <laughs> Fuente's already flirted. Like he's not going to be there much longer. Like he's he's flirted too much. He's he's not a Virginia Tech lifer. I, you're already in the area at Liberty. Like you've already built a good foundation. Like why not just stay in the area? No expectations. You'd be an amazing coach at VT. I would that just go be to VT. I just feel like I don't know when you obviously the SEC has been dominated by Alabama for you know a decade and a half basically. I'd rather only compete against Dabo. I would rather just go down that road. I would rather. Yeah, just... I feel like once you're an SEC guy, though, I feel like that's got to be like where you're trying to end up. I just all college football just seems a little like lesser than in all these other towns than it is in SEC country. You know what mm. I mean? Like. It just I know Blacksburg, like I'm not trying to paint a broad brush. Like ACC fans don't care about college football or anything, but like we've talked about it before. There's literally like seven or eight programs in the SEC that think they should be contending for national championships yeah. every year. You know what I mean? It's like Virginia Tech. They're they're cool with like, hey, you know, just have a good season, and then maybe once every five, 
six years, we're uh, we're in the national title or the top ten or something, and we'll we'll be happy with that. But um, I don't know. It just means more, you know, just like the slogan says. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, all right, are you ready to get into our picks this week? Yeah, man, let's do it. All right, where are we starting? So we are starting a uh, nice little segue with our, our fun belt talk. Mm. Uh, we're starting in the fun belt. Uh, App State, this is a tough one for me. Uh, App State is a five and a half point underdog on the road versus Coastal Carolina, the Chanticleers. What are your thoughts on this one? Whew. Okay. So Coastal Carolina um, is great on both sides of the ball. Uh, App State is not. App State's offense has had some problems this year um, under new coach, uh, Mr. Clark, and it hasn't been a smooth transition. Like, their record is solid, only one loss, but they still have a couple of tough games left in the Sun Belt for them to uh, get into that Sun Belt championship game. But, like, Coastal Carolina, I just like margin of victory. I'm a big margin of victory proponent. And them beating teams by an average of 22.8 points per game, specifically Sun Belt teams, um, they beat Georgia State 51 to nothing. Um, App State only scored, uh, only, um, so they had, they scored, they won 51 nothing against Georgia State and a team that held App State to 17 points and a Georgia State Panthers loss. Um, Coastal has not allowed a touchdown in the last two games and is giving up only 16.3 points per game as a whole this season. Like, I think they're just more balanced. I trust this offense a lot more. Um, App State, Zach Thomas got dinged up at the end of last week. And I think he's playing in this game. It seems like he is, but um, I don't know. There's just something off about App State. They don't feel real to me. And Coastal Carolina feels like this is uh, this is their magical season. So give me the Chanticleers to win and cover. You uh, you went the same direction I was thinking with it. Um, looking at just the Georgia State game, it's Coastal Carolina beat them 51 to zero, and App State beats Georgia State 17 uh, 13. That's a pretty like obviously just that 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 property doesn't always apply to football. You know, you can sometimes throw that kind of thing out. But these do look like two maybe the two best teams in the Sun Belt this year. Uh, Louisiana's, I think, uh, up there as well. But I think App State next to Georgia Southern, App State's the best, the most consistent running team in this conference. So I feel like that's what's going to if they're going to win the game, it's going to have to be on the ground. But I like what Grace McCall and Coastal coastal carolina i've done this year so i feel like this seemed like it'd be more like a pick em. the five and a half is what kind of worries me but uh i'm going with coastal carolina as well all right where are we going next and the next one we're going uh army four point favorite at home versus georgia southern and like i like we were just talking about georgia southern i think app state is the best outside of georgia southern the best running team in that conference fun fact for you there are three teams in the Sun Belt that have two quarterbacks with more passing attempts than Georgia Southern, than Georgia Southern's leading quarterback this year. So this is essentially going to be like the Paul Johnson Bowl, although I'm aware. Yeah, I'm that's aware just Paul the Georgia Johnson Southern Bowl because Monken used to coach there. There, uh, I believe DC used to coach there. There's a bunch of like army people that used to coach at Southern. That uh, yeah. So before we get any any angry tweets, I'm aware that. Paul Johnson was at Navy, not Army. But this, uh-huh. this just—if you—if you like that brand of football, which if maybe maybe you're in a hurry on Saturday and you only have two and a half hours to watch a college football game, that's what you're going to get in this one. These two teams 
seem so similar, but kind of going back to margin of victory, like you said with the first one, Army's in their six wins is won by 27.8 points per game. And Georgia Southern in their six wins is winning by 10 and a half points per game. And if, and that's including a 41-0 win against UMass. If you leave that one out, they're winning by like four points a game. They've had a lot of close games so far. So I'm taking Army in this one. So there are 27 players on Army's roster from the state of Georgia. Would you like to guess how many players from New York are on the Georgia Southern roster? I would probably say zero. There are zero. Um, the thing that's going to define this game to me is that the Eagles have the 10th best rushing defense in uh, college football this season. They allow 92.6 yards per game. Um, in their last three games, which they all won in the Sun Belt, better conference than what Army's playing, Georgia Southern allowed a total of 128 rushing yards. I just think uh, Georgia Southern's a better all-around team. Uh, Georgia Southern's legitimately good this year, and they are going to beat Army and cover. Oh, disagreement mm. all right so I, th- I think you saw this i'm you probably saw this stat this week that uh that lsu was a 42 point favorite last year when they faced the arkansas razorbacks this year at arkansas i don't know if this i was i started to say at fayetteville i don't know if this game's in little rock or something it is but in little rock it is in little rock i'm glad i didn't say it Mm. so um arkansas after being a 42 point dog last year they are a one point favorite at home against the uh lsu tigers as matt gets a call this as i get a call (laughs) this is so unprofessional oh do you have a landline no you're fine yeah my fiance actually has one for work Uh, okay that's, that's all the reason we have a landline. Unbelievable. This is an outrage. <laughs> um, so unprofessional. But yeah, so Arkansas, one point favorite uh, this year. LSU's been the worst pass defense in the SEC so far, 2020. Arkansas honestly hasn't been great uh, defensively. They've just been getting so many turnovers. And Felipe Franks, like, I'm like the big, I'm the leader of the Felipe Franks hate club. You know, like I always hated on Felipe Franks. I just never thought he was very good. This year, I feel like week after week, he just seems so consistent. 16 touchdowns, three picks this year. I uh, I, I don't know. I think this is definitely going to be a close game, but I like Arkansas. Oh, we disagree again, sir. Man, I'm just going to, I am really going to clean up as a whole. Um this week and really establish my place on the the pick'em the pick'em and against the spread um thrown lsu getting a point here is criminal um arkansas got absolutely boat raced by arc uh by florida last week um lsu has not played in 21 days um injuries are also a big factor here arkansas is gonna be limited they have a lot of people who are going to be out with covid or being near people who had covid um, one of the things that I love about this matchup for LSU is that they rank dead last in the SEC and number 123 out of 126 in passing defense in the country, allowing 335 yards per game just through the air. But Felipe Franks, not a believer. I don't think he, he's the perfect guy not to take advantage of LSU's porous pass defense. Um, yes, Traylon Burks and Mike Woods are very good, but I do not think they are going to 
take advantage as much as other teams have against this LSU secondary. I don't believe in Arkansas's offense enough. So give me LSU to win and obviously cover because they are not favored. Go Tigers. I, I And I, I think you brought up a valid point, but I think if LSU had played Florida, they would have gotten boat raced as well. So I feel like they For may sure. have scored, they may have scored 70 uh, against if they had to play Florida. So I uh, we'll see, we'll see how this one works out. Uh, next one. I feel like this just seems like the, uh, the, the hype game of the week. I just, I don't think it, it doesn't seem like a legitimate game at all to me, but who knows? Uh, Indiana number nine, not trying to, uh, you know, rain on the Hoosiers parade, but this feels like every ACC game of the last like three years, or maybe not every ACC game, but those where Boston College or Wake Forest starts five and one, and so now it's a they're a ranked opponent, and we convince themselves, you know, maybe they could beat Clemson, and then they lose by four touchdowns. That's what this feels like. Indiana twenty and a half point road dog to Ohio State. Obviously, twenty and a half points is a big spread, but. I just don't see them hanging around Ohio State. Obviously, Indiana's been solid so far this year. They look like the third, fourth best team in the Big Ten. But I see Ohio State winning this game and honestly winning easily. Like it could be a game at halftime, but honestly, I don't even know if I see that. Like I see, I see Ohio State just dominating this game. Twenty and a half is extremely disrespectful to the Indiana Hoosiers based on what we've seen so far this season. Um, I'm going to lock this in this week. Uh, Indiana is not going to win this football game, but they are going to cover. Can I can I do a lock of the week of them covering? Can I just do a lock that they cover the spread? Oh, for sure. All right. I'm going to lock in that Indiana covers here. Um, Michael Penix has just been a monster since those first two quarters against Penn State. Um, I am concerned about Ohio State's defense. They lost a lot of bodies. They're still not very good on that side of the ball. Um, they're not Michigan bad, but they, uh, they're, they're having some problems. Um, one of the things I do like about Ohio State um, is how balanced they've been because I was worried about their rushing offense to start the year, but they've rushed for over 200 yards in each of their first three games. Um, Fields is completing 87% of his passes for almost a thousand yards and 11 touchdowns with no picks. He plays perfect football, so I think that will ultimately be what separates him from Penix. But I do think IU keeps us close. I like IU's defense a lot. I think they'll give Fields more problems than anyone else has this season. But yeah, twenty and a half is just too high. I think uh, IU keeps it close and uh, too, high. Wins. too high. Oh well, well, we will find out, sir. Moving on, that's the uh, that's our big noon game of the week. Get uh, get a Gus Johnson, the legendary Gus Johnson, on that call. So moving on uh, out to the West Coast, we got Nevada, one and a half point favorite at home versus San Diego State. Um, I liked the I liked uh, how San Diego State looked last week against Hawaii. They pretty much dominated that game. But um, I think Nevada's the better team here. I think Carson Strong has been off to a really good start the first four games of this season, and their offense has just been really explosive. Romeo Dubes, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but 645 yards and eight touchdowns in the first four games of the season. This dude, the monster. So I think Nevada is they're 4-0 so far. I think they, uh, I think they keep rolling. So this is going to be very interesting because I think Jay Norvell has just been a really great coach in that turnaround from three and nine that first year. 
Um, it's been huge. San Diego State, San Diego State is just a doesn't matter who's coaching. It just seems like they're always going to be a power and go ten and two and just be really interesting. Um, Nevada, their offense, they rank number thirty three in the nation, thirty three point eight points per game. They only averaged twenty one point three last year. The defense, number twenty one in the nation, allowing only twenty five twenty point five points per game last year, thirty one point eight. The Wolfpack are good. Um, USC, UCLA, take notes. Jay Norvell, he's just sitting there. This is a tough program to win. Like Nevada is a really, really hard place to win. And Jay Norvell has just really gotten a lot of this program. Um, They're probably going bowling again for three straight years, which is pretty crazy for the Wolfpack. Um, Give me Nevada here. Doesn't it seem like there's like those certain programs that... I don't know. It's hard to explain like through the years, like through just so many different coaches, like, like San Diego state and like a, a Memphis kind of, and I don't know, like Fresno state, all those teams are like those mid majors kind of for college football. And they're like, regardless of who's there, they're just always kind of that same level of like, Oh yeah, they're respectable. They produce some NFL players, uh, a decent amount. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, uh, yeah, give me uh... Give me the uh, Wolfpack here. All right, and moving on uh, to the Big Ten, Wisconsin finally returning uh, back to play on the road. Seven and a half point dog, home dog. Seven and a half point home dog, Northwestern. What are your thoughts on this game, Chase? Northwestern, their offense really sucks. And that's like the sneaky thing. They changed out their OC for the Boston College OC under Adazio, which is never a great thing. Um, There's been this false thing that's gone around of like Northwestern's fixed. No, their defense is unbelievable. They're deep. They're like, I think they lead the Big Ten in takeaways um, to start the season. They're number eight in rushing yards allowed per game. They're allowing only like 91.8 yards per game on average. And they're only giving up two rushing touchdowns this season. They're basically like Georgia North. I guess, in the way they play. Um, Peyton Ramsey, a lot of stats and vibes. You, sir. Say it again? How dare you, sir. What? I've always said that uh, Georgia is Northwestern of the South um, in terms of That's football play. Always or just this year? No, always. Just a great no. defense. The offense is putrid. No one wants to watch it. It's, uh, you're, it's you're never an enjoyable talking, endeavor. You're talking crazy. No, the last two years, George's offense hasn't been great. Don't 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 let that revisionist history cha- uh, change your mind. No, the, you've been you've been putting I, out uh, Chase Bryce's at quarterback over the years far too often. Joe Cox, Joe Tereshinsky, Georgia. You just named like the two worst Georgia quarterbacks of like, the last. Lambert, like, Aaron Murray. Those they're the all the same. Worst. Aaron Murray's like the best quarterback in the history of the SEC. Yeah, in they're all the numbers. Same. Obviously, he's not the best quarterback, but. Stafford, don't don't give Jake Fromm, don't give me Stafford was an outlier. Stafford was the one outlier. There's a lot of good quarterback. Even Joe Cox had like a decent year. I would I would say Wisconsin and Georgia. You could make some some similarities of like the last decade or two on Wisconsin and Georgia's accomplishments. But no, uh, I think I'm going to stick with my Northwestern of the South. You bite your tongue, sir. He's disrespectful. (laughs) Um, Anyway, what was your your pick for this game? I I I think Wisconsin wins and wins big. I don't think Northwestern's good, and I think Wisconsin's extremely good. So give me Wisconsin to win and cover. Yeah, exactly. I, I the four no start is is nice and everything, but I don't. I see Wisconsin putting up another forty spot in this game, and uh, 
covering the spread. All right, next one. Kansas State, 11-point underdog on the road at Iowa State. What are your thoughts on this one, sir? Um, this one's tough, and it's going to be sneaky good. Um, Bailey Hockman's been quietly good since having to take over um, early in this season. Um, he's thrown for over 500 yards in the last three games. He's a lot more accurate than what we saw early on in Dave Doran's offense. Um, I think this is the best passing offense Liberty's seen this year. Um, Liberty's defense stinks. And Oh, you're on you're on NC State. Oh, yeah. I was confused. Yeah, you went you were saying Bailey Hockman. No, um you can go ahead and keep going with this one. We'll go Liberty NC State, but oh, I was on following Kansas. the chart. Who did you skip? It was Kansas Iowa State was next. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, I whoops, I definitely we'll come back to that. it. Keep keep going with uh with NC State. Um Yeah, so I just I think NC State is better equipped to beat Liberty than anyone else. Liberty will play this season. So give me NC state to win. And just to refresh the listeners and cover, excuse me, NC state is a three and a half point favorite at home over Liberty. I picked against uh, Liberty when they were, they were fa- when they were facing Virginia tech. I'm not, uh, I'm not making that mistake again. Give me the flames going Liberty upset Ugh. special. Well, back to the game that I, uh, omitted and, uh, missed on my sheet uh iowa state and kansas state um kansas state still playing a freshman uh their offense really really stinks uh their defense is solid but uh iowa state just has too much so give me iowa state to win and cover yeah kansas state i really liked how they looked early in the season but it it seems like every week that goes on it's like they just get a little a little bit worse than they were the previous week I, I feel like Iowa State seems like they're going in the opposite direction. I feel like Iowa State is, is kind of progressing as the season's gone on. And, yeah, I'll take Iowa State as well. And then we got Bedlam, 730 ABC, college, the site of college game day this week. Oklahoma, after the terrible start to the season, they find themselves right in the thick of things in the Big 12. They are a seven-point favorite at home over Oklahoma State. What are your thoughts on this game? Oh, Oklahoma State. What could have been this season? What could have been? Um, Oklahoma now has the best offense on third down in the Big 12. Um, I I believe in Oklahoma State's defense. I really do. I don't think Spencer Rattler's been all that great. Um, their run defense at Oklahoma has gotten a lot better since the early start of the season. They're improving all across the board, but there's just something missing with Rattler. I don't know. He's just not, he's a true, like he's not, he's a freshman. He's still learning things. Like there's just, I think we just got so accustomed to graduate transfers and older OU quarterbacks who just knew what to do that. Like he's just underwhelmed and it's not really been fair to him. But like, I, I don't know, man. Like I, I think they win, but like, I think Oklahoma is going to win because I just can't see Lincoln Riley losing three games in the Big 12. So give me Oklahoma. (sighs) Seven. Give me Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. No, just give me Oklahoma and they they cover. Give me that. Yeah, I think Spencer Rattler, the last last couple weeks, you know, just TCU, Texas Tech, Kansas State, or just Kansas, not – Definitely not the best teams in the Big 12, but 
at least he's he's starting to complete more of as a higher percentage of his passes. I feel like you're right. I feel like there 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 seems like there's something missing. Like his maybe it was just the the pedestal we put him on before the season started. He's been solid this year, um, but I feel like this game. My pick is not as much on Oklahoma as much as I'm just not a believer in Oklahoma State. And so with that, I feel like I got to go Oklahoma to uh, to cover in this one. And then the uh, going out to the Pac-12 for for your nightcap. This this might replace your uh, your Hawaii game for for the week. We got USC on the road at Utah. Utah is a two and a half point home dog, and you know what that means. This is Zeus's home dog of the week. Oh no, Utah. I'm I'm a believer. Okay, not I'm not a believer in Jake Bentley, but. USC has not been very impressive. They got two wins to start the season, but Utah obviously has not has yet to play a game. I feel like I'm just a believer. Kyle Whittingham, he's an excellent coach. Uh, and if I'm being honest, there was like no other home dogs to pick on this entire slate. So that's why I'm going Utah. They're they're my home dog. There are all kinds of home dogs on this slate. There is only two other Northwestern and no, and then our next oh, wait, game. No, hold on, um, home dog. Northwestern and then our next game are the only. Those That's are the only true. three teams. I was gonna say UCF is the ultimate home dog. That is my home dog of the week. But we'll get there. Is it? Yeah, <sighs> yeah. We'll get to, we'll get to that one. Uh, but yeah, what I'm are your actually on with USC? you on Utah. I think USC has some problems. Their defense really sucks. Um, they still can't tackle. I think Keaton Slovis. There's something wrong with him. I, I think he's hurt, and we don't know to the extent. But also, let me give you some Kyle Whittingham is just solid examples. They've won like three straight. They won, I think, three straight home openers. Um, they've won eleven consecutive home games and thirteen of their last fourteen home games. It's the longest home winning streak since twenty one in a row um, when they did that from September fifteenth, two thousand seven, to October twenty third, twenty ten. They are just, they are more equipped to beat uh, USC than other Pac-12 teams. So give me, uh, give me the Utes. And can I give you some breaking news in the podcast? Give me some breaking news. The Pac-12 has a uh, cleared non-conference opponent. So BYU can step in there. They've allowed Pac-12 teams with open dates to, uh, to book out of conference games. Oh, that'd be nice. I wish, uh... I wish the SEC teams would do the same thing. Yeah, they're not. Uh, I don't think they're going to do it. They're just trying to like wrap up this season. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, there we go. Um, where and are we going the fi- last? The final game of the of the Pick'em is going to the American, our uh, our favorite uh, conference of the podcast. UCF, another home dog, six point underdog to Cincinnati at home, three thirty ESPN. What are your thoughts on this one? Oh, home dog of the week. Zeus, watch out, my friend. Um, Spencer Rattler versus Dylan Gabriel. Spencer Rattler. Uh, what, why did I just say Spencer Rattler? What is the Cincy quarterback's name? I get these two oh, confused shoot. back What's his name? Rid- Riddler, Desmond Ritter. Ritter, there you yeah, go. Yeah, Desmond Ritter and Spencer Rattler. I get those two backwards all the time. Uh, Desmond Ritter has not been good. He does things through... Like, he's just average through the air, average through the ground you know what he is he's the felipe franks of the aac so luke fickle does a really good job of hiding what he's just not good at their defense is unbelievable they just 
completely stepped on Memphis on the road. Um, I just, I don't think this offense is going to be able to score enough with UCF. I am a offense first believer. You know this, Matt. It's my brand. Offense wins championships. The Knights are leading the nation with 619 yards of total offense per game. The FBS all-time record is held by Houston. That was uh, in 1989 at 624.9 yards per game. They are Andre Ware action. Yes, it is. Um, they are just they're humming all over the place. Gabriel's back. They're winning. Like after that two week slide, they're back. Give me the Knights at home to obviously cover and beat the Cincinnati Bearcats and ruin their Cinderella season. I want you to put some respect on Desmond Ritter's name. All right, he might not be the traditional passing quarterback. But this dude's been making plays. Like, I would like for you to explain to me what he's actually good at. Give me one positive trait. I mean, look at the last four games. This dude's got like over 400 yards rushing and like eight rushing touchdowns, nine rushing touchdowns. Mm-hmm. Like, he's doing a lot on the ground, and he's okay. completing. He's completed over 60 percent of his passes all four of those games, and those are Houston, Memphis, and SMU are all in that stretch. I feel like Desmond Ritter is doing exactly what's asked of him because it's. It's not like, while they do have an elite defense, it's not like they're this, you know, two yards in a cloud of dust kind of team. Like, their defense is elite, and their offense isn't the, the typical kind of high-octane of these kind of mid-majors in terms of passing it around. But this team is still scoring points on everybody they play. You know what I mean? So they, I, uh, I definitely think, I think Cincinnati wins this one, and I, I feel like, I don't really think it's that close. Like I think they win it by double digits personally. I'm just I'm a believer in the Cincinnati team. We disagree. There's a lot, there's a lot of disagreements on the pod today. It should be uh should make for some good some good results. I'm excited. This is a, a make or break week for us. Yeah, it's uh we'll, we'll see how we'll see how it works out. You're, you're not going to be very happy with all these uh, disagreements you have with me. No, I'm going to be very happy because it's going to go <laughs> really well for me. Um, all right, I, that is. But I feel like we got to we got to go with uh, some. We at least give a shine a light on the local teams, though, right? Okay. On, on your squad, Tennessee, Auburn. We got to get into that one a little. Do bit, Do we have right? to talk about it? Or what? What are your thoughts? Do we have to talk about Georgia? Seconds. I guess your team especially because JT Daniels looks like he's going to start this weekend. Um, yeah. Um, I guess we can uh, we can dive in and some Tennessee at Auburn stuff there. I know you've been you've been hating strong on Auburn all year. That's yes. all I'm saying. I don't even know who's going to be under center for Tennessee this weekend. We still don't really know. Um, I just I don't know if they're going to be able to get over the second half stuff. 88 to seven in the second half. I don't know if there's a natural fix there. Um, I don't know who's covering Seth Williams in this game. Tennessee doesn't really have a matchup option for him on the outside. Um, Bo Nix struggles the most against teams that can actually get home and really pressure him. Like George did such a great job of doing that to him. They're, this is a great matchup for him because Tennessee does not get any pressure on the quarterback. So he'll have time. Henry Toto will have a bunch of tackles on Tank Bigsby. So good. That'll be nice, I guess. But this is a bad matchup for Tennessee and I, I don't know. I don't think uh, Tennessee has a, has a shot here. So I think Auburn wins and covers. I think this could get ugly. 
Yeah, I could see the same thing. I would think it's just it's gotta it's gotta just be the end of the Guarantano era, right? Like you just no you know, no no I don't think so. Like Pruitt every day, like he's very pro Garantano. And if he's healthy, I would be surprised if Garantano is not the starter. It's got to be similar to what's going on in Kirby Smart's head every week. Everyone's just asking about the quarterback. And he's mm. just like, guys, I'm telling you, I wish there was a quarterback on this <laughs> roster better than Setson Bennett. I really do. But this, unfortunately, this is the best we have. I feel like that's what he's saying every week with Guarantano. Like, right. I know he's not very good, but he actually is the best quarterback on the team. Right. And I think that's yeah, the I case. See, I see it the same way. I don't I don't see Tennessee putting up much of a fight in this one. Although all if Auburn's turning the ball over like Bo Nix can do, anything can happen in any of their games. But um but yeah, I would agree. And as far as Georgia goes, I just hope Mississippi State has enough players to field a team at this point. Um it seems like every day that goes on, another Mississippi State player opts out. Like I think they're down to like fifty something scholarship players, and that's with no like COVID suspension or uh, ineligible i don't even know what you, what you call it disqualifications uh that's with no covid count in there it's just injuries and players opting out because they don't like mike leach i guess uh i don't know what to make of the jt daniels thing i uh i just i can see it now him going out there and going 15 for 20 for three touchdowns in three quarters or something. And then every Georgia fan, be like, Oh, why aren't we playing this guy the whole time? <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what's going to happen, but I'm going to try not to be that, uh, overreaction person because it's Mississippi state and they're not good. And everyone has scored points on Mississippi state. So let's try not to draw any huge conclusions from this game. But I feel like if Georgia does look really explosive in the passing game, that's definitely what people are going to be saying. And, I get, there, there could be some legitimacy to it. But. Did you see that they're probably wearing the black jerseys this weekend? I have heard that. I, um, you know, I'm a big jersey guy. Georgia's black jerseys are like the best uniform in college football. And then they went out in the offseason and totally just destroyed them with that dog collar thing. And I don't know. I, I, I don't, we don't have enough time to get in how much I dislike those black jerseys. Like, <laughs> It's just so dumb. Like, I'm, there's so many Well, you're Georgia also fans. on an island by yourself. Like, no one agrees with you on this. Like, no, no Georgia fan ag- agrees with you on this. Oh, I disagree. I feel like almost all the Georgia fans I've talked to think they just look so... They look like such a, like a peewee football team. Like, they would, oh, we're the Bulldogs. Let's put a dog collar on our jerseys. Yeah. Like, it just looks so corny, man. And the worst part about it to me is it's like, Georgia has black jerseys. This is honestly the only reason. Like, we didn't even have black jerseys, and they bust these out. I'd be like, oh, cool. That's a cool idea. But we have black jerseys, and they're like the dopest uniform there is, and we just don't wear them. Every recruit commits to Georgia, and he's wearing the the black jersey and getting hyped up in the photos, and then they just don't wear them in the games. And then we're going to finally wear black. We're we're rocking this peewee alternate. I don't know. I just... Grinds my gears, sir. I wish we just wear our regular black jerseys, but, you know, that's how much my opinion counts for. All right. Well, for that guy down there in Decula, Georgia, Matt Green, always a pleasure for myself up here in Knoxville, Tennessee, where the Tennessee Volunteers will ruin another weekend for me. Like, Tennessee, Auburn, the Falcons, Saints, like maybe the Falcons play the Saints pretty well with Jameis being in there, but we'll have to see. Um, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed my weekend off uh, 
<laughs> from Tennessee. Especially those two games. I feel like they seem like prime noon slots. Let's just go ahead and get Tennessee-Auburn, Mississippi State-Georgia out of the way early in the day. It's a, it's an intriguing game right when the college ball slate starts, but I don't have to wait till prime time to watch these games. Come on now. Exactly, exactly. All right, Matt, thank you as always. We'll be back Sunday night and uh, enjoy the weekend. Yes, sir. You as well. All right, we're back on Jonathan Taylor. Thomas talks Major League Baseball. Everything is happening edition. John, good afternoon. How are you, sir? I am doing well. How about yourself? I am so excited the weather has changed. Like, it's just, we're very much in the, it's going to be chilly season. And uh, I am are here you, for uh, it. Are you in the mold of the onions, uh, Mr. Autumn Man, or whatever it is? I forget exactly what it, what, the, what the line is, the headline. I, I, I am Autumn, Mr. Autumn Man. Is this an onion Man. one? Yes. Yes, I remember what you're talking about. Yes, uh, that is 100% me. Mr. Autumn Man. I am Mr. Autumn Man. I'm also Mr. Winterman because, like, the peacoats come out, the sweaters, the 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 pants that I like, the boots. Like, I am I'm very much into my uh, my wardrobe anyway. So this is uh, peak wardrobe season for my. No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm a I'm a big sweater and coats guy. So for me, this is this is ideal. Right. Like we're on the we're on the same page. I think uh, this is good. Um. So, the Hall of Fame. We we saw the ballot. Um, we were texting about this. Uh, we can go ahead and cross off uh, Robinson Cano's name for the future. I think um, <laughs> a lot of fiery takes, though. I saw from people that are usually very um, uh, I shouldn't say hot takey, but like I saw there was a headline. I think it was Rosenthal just like going at him, and there was just someone in the post that I like um, Sherman who went at him. Like it's just people that I usually don't see taking these fiery takes going really, really hard at Robinson Cano. Like there, it was almost like a disappointed dad. Like we wanted to put you in the hall, but you just, you did this to yourself and uh, we can't do it anymore. We're mad at you for it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think the, the, the one that jumps out to me is people make the point. It's like every dollar of Robinson Cano's contract going forward, which I, I had, I had forgotten. Like I, I thought his contract was up after 2022. That thing keeps going until through 2023, that contract, is absolutely enormous. Um, every dollar of that was guaranteed. Every single, there was nothing that Robin, not only is there nothing Robinson Cano could have done in 2021 that would have made him more money, because by the time this contract runs out, he'll be 40 years old. I assume he's going to retire. Like, no, he's going to get more money past that point. But also, well, I guess that was my point, that there's nothing he could have done to make more money either this year or going forward. This was it. All he had to do was show up. Even if he was terrible and the Mets had to, to release him, he still gets every last dollar. So why is he doing this? Like, that, that to me is just kind of the, the – and suggest to me, and of course this is all entirely without evidence and et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. It suggests to me that this is probably – and obviously it isn't the first time Cano has done this, but suggest to me that this is probably something Cano has been doing for a while. One doesn't just decide to start doing steroids at the age of 37 when you have, uh, what's 24 times three, $72 million guaranteed coming your way for the next three years, no matter what the hell you do. It, that just doesn't stand up to logic. 
so the suggest the, the the idea in my mind is okay. He's and then so now like now the thing with Robbie Cano, regardless of the impact it has on the Mets, and I, I imagine we'll talk about that a bit, is that you can't really look at any portion of Robinson Cano's career anymore and feel good about any of it because who knows how long he's been doing this. I mean, you would think that you know he would have been he would have pissed hot at least one other time before this, leaving aside the the positive test back in when was it 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, but that even wasn't that wasn't even for steroids. That was for a diuretic. That they just assumed that you know, and and rightfully so, that the presence of that diuretic meant the presence of steroids previously. Um, yeah, it, it's just it's just such a bizarre decision on Cano's part that you have to think it it is just what he has been doing for a while and that this is just who he has been. And on the one hand, that's a real disappointment. Robbie Cano is one of the best second basemen of his era. He's a player I've always loved watching. You know, he's kind of come the closest in my mind to replicating Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing of any hitter in that time period. His defense at second base has always just been so smooth, even though it looks like he's not trying half the time. But on the other hand, he made $250 million in his career and won a World Series ring in 2009. So... You know, like, can you really can you really say that he made a mistake? Because he made a quarter of a billion dollars in his career and won a World Series ring. Yeah, he's never going to go to the Hall of Fame now. That's that's pretty much done. And his career is always going to be looked at suspiciously. And there's really not going to be anyone left, I think, aside from maybe some Yankees fans who just don't care anymore, because why would they, who looks at his career with any real fondness or anything other than suspicion. So, you know, pros and cons. I don't think Yankee fans look at it that way. They're like, nope, we enjoyed it. It was fun. He hasn't been on our team for a long time now. The the funny thing is, if you look back and like every, I I saw, I think John Heyman made the point particularly that like, you know, this clearly shows that the Yankees were right not to give Cano that the offer they made him, which I believe is on the, the, the lines of like seven years, 175 million or something. Part of me is thinking, well, yeah, because they would have given $175 million to a guy who fell off a cliff and also has been suspended for steroids twice now. But on the other hand, the Yankees haven't really, up until DJ LeMayhew, second base was an enormous hole for them from the day Cano left. So really, like, <laughs> they probably would have been better off keeping him, honestly. And who knows, maybe Cano in New York, I mean, sliding doors type situation. Maybe, maybe none of this happens. But I, again, I doubt it. I assume that steroids have just been a part of Cano's career forever at this point. Um, of course, the, the Mets don't care because, well, why would they at this point? they get $24 million back that they can immediately reuse in signing, I don't know, DJ LeMayhew, or just moving Jeff McNeil to second base and, and doing something else. Like, if, if you're the Mets, like, on the one hand, it hurts to lose Cano because he had a really great season last year, albeit in 49 games. Um, but on the other hand, like, you have $24 million to play with. Cano really shouldn't be a starter at second base anymore. He's just not. He's too old. He doesn't really have the defensive chops to handle that on a full-time basis anymore. And you have a whole, so which means you also have a whole mountain new of flexibility because if Cano wasn't going to be your full-time second baseman, he was going to be eating into that designated hitter rotation, assuming the thing in the NL next year, which was going to complicate how much you got to play Dom Smith. It was going to compl- complicate how much you got to play Pete Alonzo. It was going to complicate the fact that really J.D. Davis should never be allowed in the field and really should only be at the age. Now you don't have to worry about that, especially for a guy who, again, turns... 30 turned turned 38 uh, a month ago and really if you're the Mets you probably were going to spend that whole time worried that you know 2020 was a mirage not a sign of a of a rejuvenated Cano that it was just a small sample size thing so I mean if you're the Mets and I also assume 
that at some point in the next offseason, the Mets will just say, screw it and release Cano, and that'll be that. And they'll just eat whatever's left of his contract. But, you know, if you're the Mets, like, you probably are welcoming the flexibility and the, and the newfound money. And now you can do, and now if you're, if you're, well, whoever ends up being the general manager of the Mets, uh, you can make your own imprint on that infield without having to worry about what do I do about the guy who I owe $72 million to the next three years and is toward the end of his 40s. Really, the, the people who come out looking worst in this whole Cano thing are Jerry DePoto and, and Brody Van Wagenen. DePoto for signing him to this contract in the first place, when you think about the fact that Cano was going to make $72 million from age 38 onward, just, just bonkers. And, and Brody for, that, uh, for the already awful Edwin Diaz trade now looking like one of the worst mistakes any GM has made in the last decade. You know, like that, that, that is going to go down as an all-time blunder and one that, for as much as Steve Cohen has all the money in the world to throw around now, is, is really going to set the Mets back quite a bit because Jared Kalenic and, well, mostly Jared Kalenic, he really looks like the real deal for Seattle. Yeah, I um, With all that being said, uh, Robert... Cano, if you would uh, like to be the DH for the Atlanta Braves in uh, 2022 for a year, <laughs> step right in. Don't care. Sign me. Well, I'll sign me up. I'm good for it. You're you're really gonna throw 48 year old Nick Markakis over the boat over the side of the boat like that? Absolutely. Uh, I am uh, absolutely okay with uh, with doing that. Um, we also texted about whether or not anyone in this group is going to get into the Hall of Fame. Outside of the obvious, Andrew Jones belongs in the Hall of Fame without uh, anyone pushing back against that uh, narrative. Um, do you think anyone actually gets in this this go around? Uh, I think if anyone does get in, it's I think you're looking at, a sh- at just Kurt Schilling. Um, I mean, just to start with the guys first year on the ballot, there's. This isn't obviously like, you know, Derek Jeter or Mo Rivera or, you know, any of the other uh, good first-year guys we've gotten in the last few years. We've actually gotten quite a few. Uh, this year, your best first-year candidates are your choice of Tory Hunter, Tim Hudson, and Mark Burley, who are all perfectly fine players, and if there existed a Hall of Very Good, would get in with no problem. But not one of those guys is going to make it in this year. Not one of those guys is going to make it in ever, I can't imagine. Um, I I have a hard time imagining anyone other than maybe Hunter and perhaps Burley, just because of how like people, how much people like them in part are going to make it past even a single year on the ballot. So you can already just, you can already just wipe away. There will be no first year inductees of the top returning vote getters for, uh, from last year. Schilling is number one. He got 70% of the vote last year. Um, he, I mean, he still has a little bit to go, if only because, I mean, we don't know the size of the electorate. It's probably going to be about 450 or so voters. So he's going to need minimum 337 votes. And if that is the case, last year he got, let's see, last year he got 278. And how many votes did I just say he's going to need? About 330-some? Mm-hmm. Let's look at it this way. Larry Walker just got in last year with 304 votes. So mm-hmm. let's just say Kurt Schilling needs at minimum somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 extra votes this year to get in. Is that possible? Sure. Like he has seen a decent uptick ever since he made his stupider comments a few years ago that caused, that caused him to lose a lot of support. And quite honestly, and you know, this is probably obvious, 
if he hadn't said those things, he'd probably be in the Hall of Fame by now. I, I can't imagine that wouldn't be the case. But given that he refuses to shut up and refuses to stop saying these things because he is just fundamentally a bad human being, is he really likely to convince 25 more people, especially given the way the last, like, especially given the way things are playing out now, to give him their vote? I think it's more likely next year or the year after when he's, I mean, this will be, or maybe not next year, I was, not next year, not the year after, because this is his ninth year on the ballot, next year will be 10. Um, maybe this is something where, like, like Tim Raines or Larry Walker or Edgar Martinez, it really does just take till year 10 when people are just like, ah, screw it, it's his final year, let's just let him in. I don't know. It's, Schilling is just tough because where, where is that extra support coming from? Who, who, who has not already been won over by Kurt Schilling, so to speak, in the last few years is suddenly going to decide to change their mind now? You know, that, that's the big question yeah. I have with Schilling because he is not doing himself any favors in that regard. If he had well, simply hold on. What shut do, what do you the mean? hell up. What is he... You're going to have to refresh my memory because uh, I've been blocked oh, by Kurt a, Schilling for, I think, seven years on Twitter. <laughs> What's he up to these days? Haven't been keeping up with him. Haven't been able I was to. Under the impression, I was under the impression he deleted his Twitter account. He might Did have, he but I've been blocked by Kurt Schilling, I swear, for like... Yeah, he. I got blocked okay, no, by he, him. He, Do you remember when he was going on those diatribes about evolution? Remember that? That feels yeah, like and he got several into a, he got into years a ago. Slap fight with Keith Law. Yeah, yes. and Keith Law got suspended for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it turns out I just took a look. Uh, Kurt Schilling one does still have a Twitter account. Two, he blocked me at some point nice. in the past. Block bros. So I'm I am also part of that club. Um, him him and him and Ben Roethlisberger. They just the the preemptive blocks. Um. I assume because it's Kurt Schilling and because he is just full MAGA pilled at this point mm. that he is just continuing to say stupid nonsense, stupid, racist, bigoted, horrible nonsense. I just don't have a direct window to it anymore. But, but it just sucks because he, he is a Hall of Famer, right? Like if you exclude yeah, everything else, yeah. that's what always sucks about this kind of stuff is when we learn so much about athletes like this. It's like he had that great moment. He's just a like he's he's a hall of famer like his on the field stuff is enough for him to be in the hall of fame but everything yeah, we know outside of it by, sucks so purely, much purely by this purely by the statistics he's a hall of famer he's one of the best pitchers of the post-world war ii era like there's no doubt at all no there's no argument you can make against him on a on a statistical level or on a baseball level that he's not a hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. it's just that because he is such a reprehensible person I, I do think that drives a lot. Obviously, it has driven a lot of voters away, and I think it's going to keep a lot of voters away because they're going to be sitting there thinking to themselves, "Why am I going to reward this awful, awful person?" They and I wonder if he it. knows Kurt that. Schilling, I wonder if he knows Kurt, that if he had just stayed quiet, or if he had just not been not been mad online for years, that he'd be in the Hall of well, Fame. I could think, keep that forever. I, I think he knows it, but I think he also embraces the idea of being a right wing martyr. He embraces that idea of, like, the reason I'm not getting into the Hall of Fame isn't because I'm a borderline case or because I don't have the numbers. It's because people don't like my political views. And I think, too, especially because that seems to be the entirety of conservative politics is martyrdom and, like, and the idea that, like, you're being censored and opposed and whatever. I think that has more value to Kurt Schilling, who I also do think, to a large part, has kind of left baseball behind. And has more or less fully embraced this new role and new persona as being part of this endless kind of 
right-wing grifter cycle of just chuckleheads who don't have any ideas beyond bad ones. Aubrey Huff is in the same boat, except Aubrey Huff is just never going to have to worry about Hall of Fame uh, right. candidacy because he fucking sucked. <laughs> so I, I think for Schilling, like, would, Schilling, would Kurt Schilling like to be in the Hall of Fame? If you, if you asked him, I'm sure he'd say, yes, I, I want to be in the Hall of Fame because he's a Hall of Fame player. Like we said, we, we both agree on this. It's just, I, I, I honestly, I don't know if it's going to happen at this point. He's so close. I do think it will. I do think by the end, people are just going to say, screw it. I selfishly for as, as awful a human as Kurt Schilling is, I really want to hear his hall of fame speech because it's going to be absolutely bug nuts. Like he might actually reference Infowars at Cooperstown. And I will, I will 100% die if that happens. But it's, it's just hard seeing that support happening this year because, again, he is still 25 votes short, at least. And this isn't a scenario like Martinez or Reigns or Walker where they're well-liked guys who are overlooked unfairly and who are, you know, because all three of them were obviously were, were Hall of Fame caliber players, too. And where there's this groundswell of popular support, there's no popular support for Kurt Schilling. None whatsoever. And so I do think it might actually drag out till next year, at which point people are like, eh. You know, he's a horrible person, but he's a Hall of Famer. And what is the Hall? Like, there are plenty of other awful people in the Hall of Fame. You know, why are we going to keep this guy out when we have Tris Speaker and and um, Rogers Hornsby and other guys like that in? And, you know, you, on the one hand, yeah, that's true. Like, those guys were awful racist, too. But on the other hand, it's just the idea of giving Schilling that platform and rewarding him, in a sense, for, I mean, and this is very much common now across this country is these people don't face consequences for the things they say and do. And I like that idea for as unfair as it is to Kurt Schilling, the baseball player that Kurt Schilling, the person should have to face consequences for the things he has said and done. And I think if nothing else, that will probably play out this year that there's not going to be any real, like, again, who, who, who has not already turned their mind over on Kurt Schilling and come back to supporting him is suddenly going to do that. You know, I, I don't really see it. Unless there are new voters adding, being added to the roles, they're like, eh, who cares? And honestly, if the new voters are younger and, you know, uh, what was I going to say, younger and kind of, you know, well, just younger, are they really going to be on Kurt Schilling's side of things? That seems unlikely, right? It does. Um... But then I also just want to say beyond that, uh, the rest of the ballot, obviously Bonds and Clemens are their own problem. They're picking up votes too slowly. I don't even think they're going to make it at all at this point. They're definitely not going to make it this year. They're each of them like at least 50 to 60 votes short. And they're, they're just not turning voters over quickly enough. And then beyond that, like the next highest returning uh, candidate is Omar Vizquel, who I do think will get in eventually. He's already at 52%. He already got to 53% on his third year on the ballot. Every candidate on the BBWA ballot, with the exception of Gil Hodges, who has cracked 50%, has been voted in or has made it in. Um, Fiskell's case is obviously complicated for a variety of reasons. He's just, you know, it is entirely reliant on his defense and his longevity. I do think he gets it eventually. It's obviously not going to happen this year. The, the big thing for me on this ballot isn't so much that we might not get anyone, and I really do think we're not going to get anyone this year. It's what this ballot means now that it has thinned out substantially for, the, for in particular, Scott Rowland, Billy Wagner, Gary Sheffield, Todd Helton, Jeff Kent and Andrew Jones. Those are the guys who this ballot is the most meaningful for because I think all of those guys, Roland, I do not understand at all why he is not a more popular Hall of Fame candidate. 
He is a fan. He was one of the best third basemen of his generation. He can make a case as one of the 15 to 20 best third basemen ever. Like he, he should be in the hall of fame already. The rest of those guys are all more borderline because of a variety of reasons. Obviously Wagner is a closer Sheffield with the PD issues and it's awful defense. Helton Coors field, Jeff Kent kind of in a similar boat to Sheffield, Andrew Jones, that the post 30 collapse. Those are all guys though, who can make hall of fame cases and who I think for a lot of voters in the last few years have been the first guys cut. You know, those are guys 11 through 15 or whatever on their ballot who they're like, I want to give them a vote, but there's so many other guys on this ballot who need that vote first. And now I think a lot of voters are going to have the time and the opportunity to be like, okay, I have a lot of votes. I have a lot of ballot space open. I, you know, if I don't have 15 guys for 10 spots, if I only have eight guys or if I only have four to six guys who I'm convinced are Hall of Famers, okay, well, maybe that's an opportunity to re-examine Roland or Helton or Jones and be like, is there something here that I've missed? Or even if it's like, I've always thought Andrew Jones was 11th on my 10-person ballot, now there's room for him. Now I can include him because I don't have to worry about having to cut someone else off. I I think this this cycle is most important for those guys because what you really want to see from each of them, especially for uh, Sheffield and Kent, who are going to be on years 7 and 8 respectively of the ballot, they need to start adding voters in a hurry. They need to they need to add at least ten to fifteen percent of the vote this year, or they're finished. I, I mean, I don't really think either Sheffield or Kent makes it in. I think they're just there's not enough time left for each of them, and they don't again they don't have the kind of uh, broad back support of someone like Reigns or Martinez or um, or Larry Walker, especially because those three were those three weren't borderline Hall of Famers. They were Hall of Famers who had just been under who had been underappreciated. You know, Kent and Sheffield. It's a much it's a tougher case, but you know, if, I think especially for Roland and for Helton and for Jones, who are all going to be in year three or four of the ballot, getting up to at minimum 30 percent of the vote for Jones and ideally getting close to 50 percent for Roland would would augur very, very well for them going forward. I'm not convinced on Jones that he's going to make it. He's starting from a really low point and his numbers just are not really there. But especially Roland, and I think Helton is a, is a quiet kind of uh, interesting case. I think those two have a lot to gain this year. So that's, like I said, I, I don't think anyone makes it in this year. I think Schilling is the only realistic candidate, and I do think he's going to fall short anyway. But so to me, the most important thing about this Hall of Fame ballot will be seeing what those guys in the middle do and how far they move up, especially because next, year, next year's ballot is going to be a nightmare between the final year of Bonds and Clemens and Schilling plus the first year of A-Rod. Mm. Like, I, I am going to climb into a lead-lined capsule so I don't have to hear any Hall of Fame discourse next year because it is going to be appalling. <laughs> Absolutely appalling. And that is also going to suck all the oxygen out of the room for everyone else on the ballot. So I think their gains the year after this are going to be a little... Like, this, this is really their opportunity to make a big gain, if they can. Um, and Vizquel, too. I mean, but I think... This girl's better track than all those other guys I mentioned. Speaking of appalling, the Atlanta Braves starting pitching rotation. Of um, <laughs> Not a Drew Smiley fan, huh? I, I just We all saw this coming. Marcelo Zuna being linked to the Mets, of course. Um, Drew Smiley, Kyle Wright penciled in there. Someone penciled in Mike Soroka for the 2021 MVP. And uh, Braves rotation, and I was like, uh, Mike Soroka's not pitching for the Braves next year. Um, wow. 
I, Bold I, claim there. I don't know, man. When do you think he's coming back? When do you think he's going to be Mike Soroka? I don't know because I don't know who's the last pitcher who, who tore his Achilles. Like he tore his that? Achilles. Oh, no, it's a really bad injury. It's a really, really bad injury. I am not penciling um, in Mike Soroka for any kind of relevant. Uh, just like he. We're not getting the Mike Soroka we saw before. I just there's no way that's happening in 2021. Like that is. I, I can. I, okay. I can. I can. I can at least accept that Soroka will not be 100% Mike Soroka. Yes. I think he'll pitch, and I think he'll be okay. But I think yeah, that's probably a good point. That like, or at least the air bars and the risk for Soroka are much bigger now. You There's might just get so many injury questions with the the Braves rotation, which can only well, go. The, the solution, the solution to that is Drew Smiley, the <laughs> most durable pitcher of our generation. Uh, I just Cole Hamels. I you know what's crazy is like they they saw what happened with Cole Hamels last year, and they're just like, who is the inverse of going against Cole Hamels after our one year flyer screwed us last year? Who can who can not screw us this year? Drew Smiley. Well, the thing is, like, I, I, on the one hand, like, is it risky to give Drew Smiley a actually pretty sizable amount of money? No, it's one when year. When your rotation, it's one year, it's $11 million. It's not, it's not like a, it's obviously not a big risk. But at the same time, like, I like Smiley. I like, you know, I like the, the peripherals he's got. He had that nice spike in velocity. He's always been a good player. He's just had, just had to deal with so many injury problems. But beyond that, if you're looking at the starting pitcher market, if you're the Atlanta Braves, who is there that you really feel comfortable with if not like upside plays like Drew Smiley? If you want, like, do you feel, if you're a Braves fan and the Braves come out and say, well, we signed John Lester to a two-year $20 million deal or whatever, do you Mm. feel good about that? Do you feel good about about them trying? That is the thing. Is I would feel good about them going after a veteran and trying and committing to somebody. But but who's... Who's the veteran that you feel good about? Jake Arrieta? Oh, Trevor Bauer. Jeff, Jeff Samard? Well, but Bauer is because Bauer is very clearly the number one pitcher on the market. Mm-hmm. It's just beyond him, things get really thin really fast. Oh, because, well, I guess Tanaka would probably fit in that too. I'd be comfortable but how, too. How comfortable are you with Tanaka? He's, Tanaka is a guy who's pitched for one team his entire major league career. Mm-hmm. One really smart team on top of that. He throws 90 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. His, breaking, his breaking stuff comes and goes. It just seems to be a really big feel thing with him. He seems like a very smart pitcher, but you're not getting a consistent, like, I mean, that's the thing, like, beyond Bauer and ideally a healthy Charlie Morton, who I think is someone that Atlanta really should be interested in. Charlie Morton would make a ton of sense for them. I agree. Um, who do you feel comfortable with? In the along the lines of Lester or Arietta or Tanaka or Jay Happ or Mike Leak or you know or are you t- are you going to take the big risk that is like James Paxton? Or Corey they're not going to do that. So we can are go you... ahead and rule that one out. Paxton is not one of the risks they're taking. I am mild. I am mildly amazed that they haven't already made an offer to Adam Wainwright. I figured mm. that would happen immediately. He's already been linked to them. I, I'm I'm surprised. That's what I'm saying. I'm surprised he hasn't signed. Like well, Wainwright I mean, is. It's going to happen. Like that'll probably happen at some point. He's, he's like not only was he a former Braves draft pick, but he's from Georgia, right? I yeah. believe so. Yes. Brunswick, Georgia, wherever that. South Georgia. That's like right by the. That's not even really Georgia. That's basically Florida. Brunswick is like right there at the Florida Georgia border. Either way, if you have born in Georgia attached to your resume, <laughs> the Braves are automatically interested in you. Like I, I feel like that's kind of inevitably what they're going to end up doing is someone like Wainwright or someone like 
um, you know, maybe a Mike Minor, like speaking of reunions, mm-hmm. um, someone more along those lines, because I still do think like that's really all you've got left are these kind of like veterans on their last legs. You maybe give them a year or a two year deal or something. Because otherwise, if and this is beyond the Braves too, if you're if you're a team in need of starting pitching, and you're not in the market for Bauer or Bauer's not interested in you or or whatever, who do you feel good about at this point? I would feel like, good about them trying. That's my whole thing. I want them to miss on a two to three year contract with a veteran. That's what I want. I don't want any more one year flyers. But the thing is, like, who of these guys do you feel comfortable giving more than a year to? Tanaka. I do. I would give three years to Tanaka. I really would. Okay. He's 32. But I, I, would, I, just, I would be okay with like, 32 to 35. I would give Tanaka three years. I just feel like if you were to have looked at a list of these free agent starters before the offseason began, two guys would have jumped out to you as kind of the big, like, upside, cheap upside plays that you would have expected Atlanta to make. Drew Smiley and Robbie Ray. Mm-hmm. Guys who have immense upside but have struggled for a variety of reasons to you know, put it all together over the course of an entire season. So it's not a surprise to me that those two guys are both already off the market and then Atlanta signed one of them. And the, because there, every, there's a Blue Jays uh, history there. Anthopolis and, yeah, and, that, uh, and, and Anthopolis. Yeah. And yeah, that's not a surprise there either. Because you look over the rest of these names and what you get is a lot of veterans who are like, well, maybe the floor is a little bit higher for, say, Mike Leak than it is for Drew Smiley, but the ceiling's also way lower. You know, what yeah. are you, why do you want to pencil yourself into a guy who's going to have an ERA around like four and a half and maybe give you 120 semi-useful innings? Or I guess, well, Mike Leake is a pretty good lock to give you 180 innings from here until the sun explodes. But, you know, how comfortable do you feel? I guess Garrett Richards is also kind of in that vein. Or, or Corey Kluber, too. Kluber is really interesting to me as a guy who is probably going to get one of those, like, two-year, $25 million deals um, that's backloaded. But... Future Red Sox. I think Smiley. Corey Kluber. No, they're gonna they're gonna sign like. No, the Red Sox definitely end up with like Mike Fires, mm. followed by me trying to eat my own hand. <laughs> um, but like a guy, a guy like Drew Smiley, I think was exactly what Atlanta was gonna end up with was that cheap high upside play, and then maybe and then maybe two they add one of those one or two year veterans. I mean maybe or maybe a guy like Lester who they. I think we're interested in before he signed with Chicago and who amazingly John Lester is not from the South, despite the fact that like everything about him screams the South. Well, He's hold on, sir. What does that mean? What does that mean? John Lester is a good old boy who likes hunting. I, I'm offended. <laughs> Do am I anything like any of that? What? As a person from the South, <laughs> You're you're doing southern. this on my podcast. You're doing the good old hunting boy southern dude on this podcast, John. That's where we're going. I mean, to be fair, Washington State is a pretty rural place. Like mm-hmm. you know, it's not it's it's not just one big Seattle. But oh my god, John! I'm yeah, I'm being very classist and elite. You really here. are. Aware. The I'm, New York bias is really coming out. You've been in New York too long. <laughs> You've been in New York. You've been in your bubble too long. You know, I grew up in the D.C. suburbs, right? Like, I, this has just been my entire life. Well, there's that. You know, what's funny is I, I had a conversation with someone about this yesterday about what D.C. actually qualifies as someone who is from there. And they're like, yeah, we don't really know what we are for the north of the south. We have an identity crisis. D.C. is weird because it's got a lot of transplants. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's, it's strange. It, it just also depends whether or not you like. I mean, if you're from D.C. proper, that's one thing. If you're from Maryland, that's another thing. If you're from northern Virginia, you're basically from D.C. 
because no one is from Northern Virginia. People just live in Northern Virginia. Um, regardless, I don't know if, if you're the Braves or if you're a Braves fan, like you probably feel okay about Smiley, but the, the only issue is like, that's a lot. It's a high variance, high risk rotation you have right yes. now. You know, that's a, that's a rotation Kyle where Wright should I think not be penciled correct. in for this rotation. Like that's insane. But it's also a rotation that between, uh, Soroka, Max Fried, uh, Ian Anderson, Smiley. And I guess, like you said, Kyle Wright's the number five right now, because there's really no one else. That rotation is either giving you 200 innings or a thousand innings. Yeah. There's no in between, you know, you are really taking a risk. If you're not adding some more dependable options, I think the problem for the Braves is a problem that every other team faces. There really aren't much. There isn't much in the way of dependable options on the market right now. So if you're the Braves, like, do you do you at some point just accept that maybe you need to make a trade? They have assets for a trade. They do. They have had assets. They just refuse to use them. Yeah. Well, Colby Allard's right down the pipe. He's going to be great. Oh, what's that? Uh, Colby Allard. Where? What? Oh, he's he's in the Rangers now. Okay. Oh, got it. Uh, just got in my ear to let me know that not all Braves young pitchers work out. Um, not all Braves prospects. No. Um, Epstein, best guess. What do you think? I think he actually doesn't join a team this season. I think he's. Mm-hmm. I think he's sincere that he, that he wants to be an owner. I think the only because like does he have the enough? only real way I, guess... I think it happens is if the Mets make him. He does have enough to like be a does co-owner. Like, like, what is his? I mean, he can he can buy in a one to ten percent stake of okay. a you know, that's not terribly much. The other part of it is like, regardless of what percentage of a stake he has, he's Theo Epstein. Any any group, be it a group looking to buy a team, or maybe he attaches himself to one of the expansion groups like in Nashville or Portland. I think that would really actually make sense for him, is because that then he gets to do what he likes to do, which is build a team from the ground up. Um, I think any of them would be happy to have him be part of the group, regardless of what percentage he buys in, because he he just he he lends an air of immediate legitimacy. You know, any to any prospective uh, seller and to any prospective group of fans, um, you can say, "Hey, look, look who's on board." The guy who brought World Series championships to Boston and Chicago—that's such a huge selling point. And I think Theo understands that too. That he. You know, he doesn't have to do the game where it's like, oh, I'll just find another team to take over. He he is he's something bigger than that at this point. You know, it's 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 the same thing as if Billy Bean said, "I'm done with the A's." And I think in in the same way that if Billy Bean were to say, "I'm done with the A's," and he kind of sort of is, but not officially, that his next step would be ownership. So I think there's only so long you really want to be the GM versus being the guy who just gets to kind of make money and just watch it all from afar. Um, just because I made the point when I wrote about Theo for Fangraphs, you know, he brought a World Series to Boston and the 86-year title drought. He brought a World Series to Chicago and ended 106 or 8, I can't remember, 108. 108-year title drought. What more is there to do? Even the Mets don't offer that kind of opportunity. I mean, granted, if Theo Epstein were to join the Mets as their general manager or president of baseball ops or whatever and bring them a World Series, he becomes a god figure to that franchise. The same way he was in Boston and the same way he is in Chicago. But I do think that there is an element of ownership. And like, why would you not want to be an owner? You know, especially when you consider what Theo's talking about or what he was talking about during his press conference about the aesthetics of baseball and how like the game has gotten kind of ugly. I think to a certain degree, he might recognize that being in charge of baseball operations, you can't really do that much about that. Because you have to go really hard against the grain at this point to, to build a team that isn't like every other team. 
you know, and there's also no guarantee that even succeeds. Maybe at this point, what he wants is just to have more of like a, not just an owner role, but something where he has more influence on the game itself, something within the league, perhaps, or something to do, you know, just on a bigger kind of more Ted talky type scale. Cause I do think that's Theo Epstein's ultimate destiny is being one of those kind of like, you know, Ted talk type gurus, but just about baseball. So mm-hmm. I, I can, I, I can see the Mets making him a godfather offer, you know, just promising him total control, a lot of money, you know, whatever else. But I think ultimately I do think he, he sticks to and decides like my next step in baseball is ownership or something similar to it. You know, I've, I've, I've worked two miracles. I don't need to work a third, especially because if this at all matters to him, his legacy, he's already a hall of famer. You know, when the time comes for him to be under whatever consideration it is for Hall of Fame induction through an, through an era committee, he's going to walk in. You know, he's one of the most important front office figures of the last 25 years. If not, and he is a, a figurehead for an information data, even just a total revolution in the way baseball exists. You know, him and Billy Bean really embody that. And so I think, you know, what, what mountains are there left to climb for Theo Epstein, you know, beyond ownership, beyond the next step of joining the money class. And I, I think that is what probably what holds the most people. That's also, if you're in the owner class, you're also doing way less work. And I have mm. to imagine at a certain point, he's been doing this job for almost 20 years. He's probably pretty eager not to have to work as much. I would be, you know, especially he's got kids, he's got a family, you know, he's got charitable endeavors. I imagine there is an element of his uh, of, of his decision where it's like beyond obviously what it reflects about the Cubs and where they're going. I imagine there's an element of his decision where he's like, you know what? I think I'm ready to take a step back in terms of like the day to day and not have to like put my nose to the grind so hard, you know? Yeah. I think he takes a year off too. Um, I, f- I think it was Buster only who tweeted out that um, he's a lifer and that he is still wanting to run another team, but he wants to run another bottom to the top team and i don't know if the mets fit that mold i mean i guess just getting the world series ring and just being the savior in chicago new york and boston is just like the greatest run in baseball history um if he was able to pull that off if he's not already had the best run with just those markets and giving them championships but like i don't know we'll we'll have to see what ends up happening there but i do think at the very least he takes this year off um john we have to wrap up unfortunately today but uh Thank you, as always, sir. Uh, is there anything you would like to plug at the place that you are now writing and editing for, Fangraphs? Doing, doing some editing there, too. Uh, doing a little bit of writing. Like I said, I wrote about Theo the other day. Uh, I'm going to be joining the Fangraphs audio podcast to talk about Theo as well, to talk about those aesthetics of baseball co- uh, comments. So look for that in the next day or so, dueling podcasts. Uh, otherwise I'll just be, you know, piping in at Fangrass, you know, whenever, whenever I kind of feel like I have something to say, but, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I know we, I know we wanted to talk some season review stuff, but that's the thing. Like now we're in the portion of the off season. I feel like where it's like, yeah, like let's start looking at these, these teams. Let's start looking at what's, you know, what's coming up. What do, what do these teams need? What's, what's cool in the streets, you know? Well, uh, next week we'll do the Orioles, but we'll only do the Orioles. Let's just stick to no news. All, no all Orioles podcast. Let's go. All Orioles. That's how we'll do it. Talking, talking DJ Stewart. It's gonna be great. Exactly. A bunch of former first round picks that uh, no one remembers anymore. Um. All right. We'll do it. John. Thank you as always, sir. Uh, stay safe out there and have a great weekend. You too, man. 
Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.